I do not know what we put in the coffee, but praise God. <laughs> All right. I want to tell you something. I really believe y'all believe what y'all just saying. <laughs> it's good. And thank you. Thank you for bringing God your best to worship him. We're starting a new series today. <laughs> let's, let's try that anyway. Uh, we're doing a series called Let's Be Clear. And we're going to be studying the book of 1 John. It's a letter in the, in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. And we're going to be studying that over the next several weeks together. And we're going to be talking about, let, let's be clear on some things that otherwise the messages we get in other places we might be fuzzy on. We want, to, we want to make sure we're absolutely clear on what the Bible teaches on some very foundational things that we need to be clear on today. And uh, we're going to uh, start off by just saying, look, context really matters. Like when we read this book, we got to understand kind of who it was written for and why and all those sort of things. Context matters. It matters in a lot of things. It matters when you're handed some pictures. Now, for you young parents, if you have kids drawing you little drawings, I have a whole notebook of these. I, I don't know why God kept me to, led me to keep these, but I kept all the little drawings my kids have done over the years, and I'm so glad I did. This one I, says, I love you, Daddy. Isn't that good? That's the best boat I've ever seen right there. Good job, son. And we got, uh, we got Dad, Hope, I Hope, Shay, Dad. That says it all, baby. That's Dad and Shay right there, man. It's beautiful, right? Then I got a picture. We got the whole family going on here. Uh, yeah, that's good. I'm going to come back to that one. Um, I think that's me. Um if any of y'all handed me this, I'd be like, no, thank you. But since my kid made that for me, you know what? That, that's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> I knew somebody was sitting there taking a shot. Look, stayed in the lines. That was worth keeping. Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? That looks like me. Mm. All right. And then, you, and then you got this. That's creepy, y'all. If if any if someone would if someone would have put this in a letter and sent it to you with no name on it, you'd be you'd be genuinely terrified for your life. You would get private security to keep you safe. But since my kid gave me this, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know what? Context matters. <laughs> it, the, the, that my little three-year-old and two-year-old and four-year-old kids handed me that. That makes perfect sense that I would have these and I would keep these, right? Context matters. Especially when you're studying the prophets of the Old Testament, there's a specific reason that God would write these prophetic words to the nation of Israel. You need to understand who the audience was, what was going on in their history, why God was writing it, who the prophet was. All that matters. When you're reading the New Testament, all that matters. Specifically in the epistles, like we're going to read today, uh, when there's a letter written to a church, you need to understand who's writing it, who he's writing it to, and, and what the circumstances and the context of what was happening in that church or churches. Context really matters. And so 
I would just say anytime you're studying the Bible, anytime you're trying to figure out a passage, the reason we get unclear in biblical teaching and Christian theology today in our churches is oftentimes we pull things out and we don't understand why it was written. And it gets really fuzzy. You can pull stuff out of God's word and make it say whatever you want it to say. So let's be clear on what God's saying to us today. We're going to talk about Jesus today. How about that? <laughs> um, in fact, we're going, to, uh, we're going to start with that. And I'm just going to say, if you want to read 1 John, it does a beautiful job. I'm going to try to do my best to describe Jesus to you today. But, but reading the book of 1 John would be a good thing to do if you want to get to know who Jesus is better. I would also recommend the Gospel of John, the same author, but the Gospel of John is the life of Jesus. And I would really recommend you read the Gospel of John. If you want a little help with that, we do have a resource in the bookstore uh, called 30 Days with Jesus and kind of help you walk through getting to know Jesus better. So you can pick one of those up also. So, and we're not going to start at the beginning. Let's understand the context and the purpose for which 1 John was written. And we're not going to start at the beginning. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 26, because he spells out exactly why the apostle John wrote this. And he says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. The whole purpose of this letter in this church and other churches that there was a group or, or a, a kind of a, a growing core of people that were beginning to teach things that weren't true about, about many things and one of them about Jesus. And they were spreading heresies about who he was and why he came and all sorts of things. A heresy is anytime someone deviates from the orthodox generally accepted view of scripture. It's called heresy. And Satan loves to lie and get us mixed up and unclear about who Jesus is. Do you agree with that? I believe he's been doing that for a long time. In fact, it startled me to realize in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had just been baptized and he'd gone in the wilderness for 40 days. He was starving to death and that's when Satan came to tempt him. Does Satan come to you in your strength or in your weakness? Tell me. He comes when you're weak, doesn't he? He came when Jesus was at his weakest moment and he said, listen, listen to what he said to him. If if you're the son of God. He said that twice, did you? If you are the son of God, and then he tempts him with something. Can I, can I make an observation? The lie knew exactly who Jesus was. There wasn't any funniness, but he was willing to lie to Jesus' face and try to cause doubt. And if you are Jesus, if you are the son of God, then do this and do that. Let me ask you, if he's willing to lie to Jesus about Jesus, do you think he's willing to lie to you about him? All day long. All day long. So we need to be really clear about who Jesus is. And so the apostle John was in a unique position for God to inspire to do that because John had lived uh, three and a half years at least with Jesus and he was probably a teenager at the time. And now this is later in John's life. This is several decades later. And John the apostle is writing this letter to this group of churches to set the record straight about a bunch of things. But we're going to start with who Jesus is. And so this is what he says. Now that we know why he wrote it, this is what he starts with. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. See, there's speculation about who Jesus was and there's theories floating around in this point in the church about who Jesus was. And John says, I need to set the record straight. Listen, if you go and ask somebody, have you ever done this? Who is Jesus to you? Or who do you think Jesus is? Or what's your take on Jesus? If you've ever asked that question, you know you get all kinds of answers. I mean, it's all over the map, all over the board. There's so much misinformation about who he is. And now somebody told me this. I tried it yesterday. It didn't work yesterday. I I think whoever told me this was was saying the truth. But they said you could ask Alexa, who is Jesus? It would start by saying Jesus is a fictitious character. There's all kinds of misinformation about who Jesus is. John says, I'm an eyewitness. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. You don't have to go any farther than me. I'm literally the living expert on Jesus. You ever had a show coming out or a movie that was going to come out, and you couldn't wait to get the juicy details about that movie before it comes out? How many of you are like that? Okay, one. That's great. All right, I'm talking to I'm talking to y'all too then. Um, but you're like wanting to know, like, is this character the good guy or the bad guy? Or does this person die? Or what's going to happen? What's up in the next season? And so you're looking to find and There's all kinds of theories. There's all kinds of opinions. There's all kinds of uh, things circulating. And then you get the inside scoop. And you hear an interview from an actor or the director or the producer. And you know. You're in the know. That's what John is. He's like, I know. I've got the inside scoop on Jesus. So let me tell you what I know without a doubt, historically, accurately, to be true about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you four handles, four things that John teaches in the, first, the letter of 1 John about Jesus. And the first one is this, that Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. He said this, Uh, that which was from the beginning. That's how he literally starts his letter. That which is from the beginning. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1.1. The first phrase of your Bible says, in the, help me out, beginning, God. He's saying, listen, just like God was in the beginning, Jesus was in the beginning. What was here before God made everything that was to be made? God. God the Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit have always existed in perfect unity and fellowship with one another. Jesus wasn't created in the beginning before all this started. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is an eternal, existent being. He wasn't created. He's the creator. He was with the Father. He's called the life and the eternal life. And I love how this passage parallels what John wrote in his gospel, John 1, verses 1 and 2, and he says this. In the beginning, there's the beginning again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word there is capitalized, capital W. It's speaking of Jesus, that Jesus is the living Word. Let's stick Jesus' name in that. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the 
beginning. You say, how is Jesus with God and God? That's confusing. Of course it is. It's this idea that God is one God and yet three persons. And it's this mysterious attribute of God called the Trinity that we can't fully wrap our minds around, but that he is one God and in three persons. And all three of those persons have always existed. Outside of time, outside of matter, God. Jesus is God. It's an inescapable reality of Scripture that Jesus is God. If that isn't good enough for you, I got one more. I love how he ends the the letter that he writes. He says this in chapter 5. He says, We know also that the Son of God, Jesus, has come, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's clear, isn't it? Jesus is God. This amazing thing that we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, that God would somehow take, take on human form and, and come and dwell among us, that he's God. And that's really the second point I want you to see. Actually, let me, let me say one thing. That's, this false teaching that Jesus wasn't God is still around today. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I don't mean to pick on anybody, but the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a created being just like Gabriel or Lucifer, that he was an angel, an exalted angel, and that, that, that he was a created being. Can I tell you something? These passages make it clear. Jesus is creator, not created. He's the living God. He is God. And secondly, Jesus was a man. Jesus was a man. Now, I think it's important to understand that, that he was a man because in John's day, he really tackles this, and we'll see some verses in a second, but he tackles this specifically because there was a lie floating, excuse me, floating around in the early church that Jesus had just sort of come down, floated down as a spirit, hung out, taught a few good things, uh, uh, and then floated back up into heaven one day that he didn't physically come down and become a human being. And that teaching actually led to some really terrible that that you can corrupt this flesh, you can do anything you want to it, you can be as bad and as nasty as you want, and that's okay because the body and the flesh is separate from the spirit. You can be dirty outside and your spirit still be clean. That's like us saying today, man, you can live like, you know what, Monday through Saturday and then come in here and pretend that it's not really you, right? Let me ask you something. That teaching, you think that took root in the church? Does that sound like a popular message? Hey, you can do whatever you want to do. You can expose yourself to whatever you want to expose yourself to, and it's okay because it doesn't really touch your spirit. And John's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That's just not true. They are inevitably and purposely connected together. Satan has a great recycling program. Do you realize that? I mean, I don't know if you have that box out in your driveway, Satan's recycling program. What he does is he takes a lie, and he recycles it over and over and over again. He takes the same lie in your life and in my life, and he'll repackage it, and he'll throw it back at you over and over and over again. And then he'll take something from a generation and say, oh, man, I haven't... I'll blow some dust off this lie. Let me pull it back out and let me see if I can feed this lie to this generation just like I did in generations past. See, Satan is crafty, but he's not original. He hasn't had original thought in his life. He takes everything that is good that God has and perverts it into his form. And so he'll recycle the old lie over 
and over again. And if he can recycle that lie that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh or that Jesus, you know, our spirit is separate from our body, then he's one. In our lives, he's one. Let me put it to you this way. If you believe that what you watch with your eyes or listen to with your ears or put in your body or do with your hands or let your feet take you to go doesn't have a profound effect on your spirit, you've been deceived. They're tied together. They're tied together. I think we had it right in Sunday school way back in the day when we learned the song, Be Careful Little Lives, What You See. Remember that one? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because the Father up above is looking down in love. Help me out. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because what goes into a man or a woman affects the heart. It affects the heart. You ever notice that you're around people that cuss? You're more likely to cuss? Not me. Y'all, forgive me, Lord. <laughs> John says, listen, all that is a bunch of baloney because I've touched him. My hands have touched him, and he debunks the idea that Jesus was just spirit and that we can be separating our lives from body and spirit. He says it this way uh, else in his book. In John 5, he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, commentators are divided on what this water and blood stuff means. Some would say it's representing of Jesus' baptism, the water, and the blood, his crucifixion. And others would say that the water means his birth, his physical birth. There's water there, right? And then the blood being his crucifixion. But all of them agree that the blood represents his physical blood being poured out into for you and I that his body bled, his physical body had to bleed for the payment of sin. And Paul says it this way, and what he says is most important in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for what I've received, I pass on to you of first importance that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And I always thought, you know, him dying for our sins was really important. Obviously, him rising from the dead was really important. But is it really of first importance that he was buried? That seems like a logistical thing to me. And then it occurred to me, how do you bury a spirit? You don't. The reason he says he was buried is to make us remember that Jesus' body literally went to a grave, that he physically died, and he laid in the tomb for three days. And then that same body was given resurrection through the Father, and he conquered hell, and he conquered sin, and he conquered death, and he burst out of that grave on the third day. Physically, his body isn't there. Don't ever watch a show that says, we found Jesus' bones. They ain't here. He's gone. He's resurrected. He physically resurrected from the dead. In fact, it says that it'll happen to us too. Look at this. I want you to see Philippians 3. 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Not only did Jesus come physically to earth, not only did he physically die, not only did he, was he physically buried, not only did he physically uh, resurrect from the dead, he was resurrected to a physical glorious body that one day you and I will have just like his can I tell you, if you have an ailment today, that's good news. If you're battling sickness today, that's good news. If you're tired of limping around, it's good news. One day, you will possess a glorious body like the body of Jesus Christ. Imperishable will be floating around on clouds someday. We will have a physical, glorious, uncorrupted, imperishable body that we will get to know our Savior forever in. We'll be able to touch him. Man, that sounds good. I'm getting in line, man. I'm all, I'll, I'll be out of the way. I'm sorry. I will, I will push my way to that front of that line. So he's like us in that he had a physical body. He's human. He's flesh and blood like us. But he's very unlike us in another attribute that John brings out, that Jesus is sinless. He's sinless. He says it this way in chapter 3, but you know that he appeared so that, we might, that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. In him, Jesus, there is no sin. Can I tell you the idea that Jesus uh, somehow sinned while he was on, his, on this earth is a recycled lie of the enemy. He pulls that out every so often, and he tries to shove it down our throat. You might have, uh, if you're on the History Channel long enough, you'll probably watch a show that says Jesus had a mistress. And I believe there was a program on Netflix at one point where Jesus had an inappropriate relationship with a disciple. Can I tell you something? Those are recycled lies of the enemy because the scripture says anything outside of a covenant marriage between husband and wife is a, sin, a sexual sin before God. And if Jesus did any of those things, that this passage isn't true. He's sinless, it says. And if this passage isn't true, then you've got to ask, well, what other passages aren't true? And if this isn't right, if Jesus wasn't sinless, then where does that leave us? No, the scripture is really clear. Jesus Christ is the sin. See, I can tell you, there's zero evidence that Jesus ever sinned. There is zero evidence that Jesus ever sinned. You know how I know that? Matthew chapter 14. I love this passage. They're bringing Jesus together and he's standing trial. And this is what it says. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, those are his enemies, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they could not find any. They couldn't find any. They're just trying to find one law out of the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament that Jesus had broken. Because if he had broken any of those laws, then they could have had justified reason to put him to death. And they couldn't find any. And these were people desperate to find something, to get something to stick, to find some dirt on Jesus, and they couldn't find any. Jesus stands before a pagan, ungodly ruler named Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, and he interviews him and he interrogates Jesus. And after that, he's like, I find no fault in this man. He's perfect. He's spotless. Let me ask you something. How about you? What if they try to find all the evidence on you and me? 
What if they, yeah, oh Lord, right? <laughs> I don't want you, don't look up, you know, don't go dig too deep into my past, man. Um, if they tried to find evidence on me for my sin, they wouldn't have to look very hard. And they wouldn't have to look very hard for you either. But Jesus stood spotless before his accusers because Jesus was without sin. And it says this in Hebrews, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest uh, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us, let us hold firmly to the faith we I'm sorry, profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not, what? Sin. Look, when the, and the enemy lies about you and tries to accuse you and tries to tell you that you aren't loved and you aren't a child and that you are no good, that Jesus says, oh, excuse me, I stand as your high priest and that's my child and they are forgiven and by my blood they are made whole. Thank you. you can't accuse them. He stands as your high priest in heaven right now. What is he doing? He's interceding before the Father on your behalf. saying, that's mine. And he can do so because he's a high priest with no sin. He is the high priest who is perfect representation between God and man. And he stands in your defense without sin. That's a big deal, isn't it? Our faith rests on Jesus being sinless. Do you see that? Our faith rests. I'm going to unpack that more. But our faith rests on him being sinless. Jesus had to be sinless so that, last point, Jesus could be the Savior. Jesus is Savior. Savior just means the one who saves. He's the one, the one, the only one who can save. This is what 1 John 4 says. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this passage is full of so much good stuff. It answers some really important questions. The first one is, why do we need to be saved? What are you, what are you talking about? I, I don't need to be saved. I'm doing fine. No, this script, the passages here say, you and I need to be saved because we have sin in our lives and we stand condemned before a holy and just God who loves us, but because he is just, he can't let wrongdoings go unpunished. We must judge. And we need to be saved because we all have sin and stand condemned before him. And the answer is, why would God do that? Did you notice that? Why? Why would God do what he did? Why would he step out of heaven? Why would he become flesh? Why would he be ridiculed and misunderstood? Why would he be beaten? Why would he go to a cross? Why would he hang there? You. He loves you. He loves the world, but listen, personalize that. He loves you. Not you that's going to be someday. Not you when you get your act together. He loves you right now. He loves you. You say, well, why does God love me so much? I'm unworthy of that love. I agree. I have no idea what would compel our God to love us the way he does. But he does. 
Maybe it's like Isaiah 55 says. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and man, his ways are higher than our ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. I mean, I just don't know why he would love us the way he'd love us, but he does. Maybe that's just because he's so much better than we realize. I'll tell you why. It's because he loves you. Answers the third question. How are those sins atoned for? How, how does the sins of the world paid for by Jesus' sacrifice? The scripture there called him the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It means the substitution that satisfi- satisfies the debt. The substitution that satisfi- satisfies the debt. If your loved one was taken, kidnapped, and, ra- and held for ransom, and they said, you need $3 million dollars, in order to get them back. That's the ransom, right? And you'd do anything you had to do to get those $3 million to get them back if you could trust them. Can I tell you what God has said is simply this. There is a ransom for your sin and my sin that you and I have been kidnapped by sin and it's holding us for ransom. And the ransom isn't money or going to church or praying enough or trying to do better or living sin caused all this mess and one perfect sinless Savior can pay for all this mess. And Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sin and for mine. It's the only payment God could accept. Is the perfect Lamb of God. So who did Jesus do that for? Chapter 2, verse 2 of this book says, He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think it's pretty much everybody, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> who did he lay down his life for? Everyone. Who does he love? Everyone. Whose sins did he pay for on the cross? Everyone. Not just anyone, everyone, and that everyone includes you. He died for you. Personalize this. Jesus laid down his life and paid for your sins in full. And there's nothing you can add to it. He is the atoning sacrifice for your sin and for mine. So the last question we've got to ask is, so who is saved? If Jesus is the Savior, who are the ones he will save? Chapter 5, verse 5 says this. Ask it this way. Who is the one that overcomes the world? Listen, only, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's it. Those who recognize Jesus as God's sent Savior of the world, that he was God in the flesh, the sinless, perfect sacrifice upon a cross for the atonement and the payment of their sin. Only those that believe Jesus is who he said he was and did what the scripture said he did make payment for us. Only those will be saved. So let me just ask you, straight up, Have you placed your faith in Christ alone to save you from your sins? It isn't Jesus plus these other things, or Jesus, I'm going to start tithing, or Jesus, I'm going to go to church more, and Jesus and this other thing. No, Jesus alone is the only one who can save us. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Listen, if your answer to that question is yes, I praise God that that's true. But if the answer to that question is no, or, hey, I, I, 
the Jesus that I'm worshiping isn't the Jesus that you described, the, the, the God that I've kind of got in my head or, or the Jesus I've sort of kind of figured out on my own isn't the one that we just described from God's word, then listen, I got to tell you something. You're not worshiping Jesus. You're, working, you're worshiping a creation of a God that, of your own making. And if that's where you want to stay, I want you to do something. You need to go find the prettiest block of wood you can find and get a hammer and a chisel and just carve out an image and put it up on your mantle and say, this is the God I worship because I want a God that I can control, that I can make, that I can uh, give the parameters to, that I can tell when, when to back off. But if you say yes, Jesus is God. Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus led a sinless life. And Jesus Christ came to be my Savior. Then the only response, if your answer was no, is to say yes today, that you would receive him the forgiveness of your sins, that he might impart his life to you today. Let's pray. God, what an incredible God you are. that you would love us enough to do a really horrible thing to set us free from our sin. God, the reality is someone within the sound of my voice is being held ransom and captive and kidnapped by sin. And they've tried to get away or make payment through good works or going to church. And God, I pray that your spirit has convinced them today that there is no other name under heaven by which they can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ, that he's the payment for our sin. And if you're ready to invite Jesus as he is in full, not as you've made him, but in full, this sinless God-man who came to rescue you for your sin, if you're ready to make that decision today, I want you to raise your hand. Say, I'm inviting Jesus Christ into my life today for the forgiveness of my sin, to remove the ransom and bring me back home to the Father. And I want you to pray with me now. Say, God, I'm, I want to know Christ. I want to know his forgiveness. I want to receive him into my life as he is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And not just the Savior of the world, Lord, today, make it personal. Today, I'm asking you to be my Savior. Tell him that. God, would you be my Savior today? Would you forgive me of all my sin? Would you come into my life that I might live now for you? God, thank you. It is by faith in Jesus alone that we have life forevermore. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.